Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Books and Sociology, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ritu Parna, and today I'm going to be in conversation with Ulve Bosma. Ulve Bosma is a senior researcher at the International Institute of Social History and Professor of International Comparative Social History at the Rije Universität Amsterdam. Pardon my pronunciation. He was a visiting professor at the Colle des Oste Etudes in Sciences Sociales in Paris and a fellow at the Netherlands Institute of Advanced Studies. His main fields of interest are the histories of labor, international labor migration, and commodity franchise. In today's conversation, we are going to talk about his new and very exciting book, The World of Sugar How the Sweet Stuff transformed our politics, health, and environment over 2,000 years, which has been recently published in 2023 by the Harvard University Press. Ulbe, I welcome you to this conversation. Thank you so much for joining me today on New Books Network. Thank you for having me. Right. So let me begin by asking you your main motivation behind writing this book. Could you talk a little bit about the context? Yes, um, of course, uh, many publications have appeared on, on sugar, but they're overwhelmingly on the uh, Atlantic realm, on the Caribbean islands, on slave plantations and so forth. Um, I started doing my research on, on Java in Indonesia, and Java was the second largest sugar uh, exporter after Cuba at the turn of the 20th century. I also did work on India. And I see that when, when people talk about the global history of sugar, they entirely tend to ignore the immense amounts of sugar that were produced in India, in China, in colonial Indonesia, Queensland, Australia, the Philippines. So I thought it was time to write a truly global history, and I thought that it was well-equipped to do that because of my background in Asian uh, history. So the reviewers of my book have already said that this is a truly global history, and I think that they are right for a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, I take into account that Asia before 1870 was the largest sugar producer of the world, so most of the world's sugar came from, from Asia. I'm talking about these sugar plantations and sugar belts and 
peasant sugar in India and in China extensively in my book. Um, and talked about industrial cane sugar, but also about peasant sugar, sugar that was part of the agricultural cycle in India or China or in Latin America. I talk about beet sugar in Europe, and I also talk about how these different realms of sugar production interacted with each other. So I think that that's, that makes it a truly, truly global um, uh, history of, of sugar. And of course, it will stir further debates because I know some colleagues are already working on other fields of sugar in Asia. So I hope that we can redress the bias of, of th thinking that sugar is predominantly a, an Atlantic affair. Right. Uh, and that's very interesting. So could we also say that the history of sugar is the history of capitalism? Yeah, if we define capitalism as um, trade and production by private uh, persons, not by government, private persons, for a profit, um, then I can say that sugar has been very pivotal even in the emergence of, of global capitalism. So we need to think, take one step back. About a thousand years ago, uh, what people did was mostly within their own household. They had their own yards, they produced their own food. Uh, perhaps they bartered within their own village economy. But most of what the people consumed was made by themselves and there was no money involved. Now, now today, we see that most of what we do is bought on the market, and many of these people, many of these products are from from far away. So there's a tremendous change in our consumption patterns over the past 700 years. And sugar has been uh, has played a very important role in this. And sugar was one of the first items that was traded over longer distances in significant quantities. Of course, we had spices that were traded over long distances, but that were just in very small quantities. Sugar in the 12th, 13th century was already traded in quite significant quantities, even though, of course, it was not in the volumes as it is today. So um, that is about how capitalism emerged. It's also a telling story about how capitalism functions. Uh, our current overconsumption of sugar is uh, how capitalism functions, how market forces function, the way in which sugar uh, creates social the um, uh, irresponsible conditions, uh, human oppression, um, but also the way in which sugar has left the cost of uh, environmental destruction to the communities. We had this week these horrendous news about the fires in the, in Hawaii, and they were on abandoned uh, sugar plantations that were grown or were left fallow, uh, fallow after the um, the the, uh, the sugar industry in Hawaii disappeared. And uh, this was an important cause in the devastating consequences of these fires on, in Hawaii. So the environmental and social consequences of sugar production um, are also result of how capitalism works. So the, the profits are for private persons, but uh, the, the, the communities, the society at large have to foot the bills of the social and ecological consequences. Right. So could you talk a little bit about how and where did this sugar capitalism begin? Uh, if you could also reference to the Indian and the Chinese cases. Yes, I think that uh, when we talk about global capitalism, we do that since, uh, well, the, the studies by, by Wallerstein uh, or Karl Marx even, uh, is usually um, 
considered to be a result of, uh, of European uh, developments. Uh, Columbus crossed the Atlantic and then brought capitalism to, to the Americas, etc., etc. So the idea that capitalism only started with European colonial expansion, and I think that is wrong, um, it starts earlier and it starts in India in China, in Egypt, and in Persia, and precisely because it was so closely linked to the emergence of international sugar trade. So to take one step back, um, 2,000 years ago, um, in, in, in Bengal, in India, uh, peasants were um, having some plots of cane, uh, cut the cane, boiled it, and have some chunks of raw sugar with them, which they uh, ate in the wintertime. That's how the whole sugar economy started. And then um, in uh, five, six hundred after Christ, people discovered how they could make from cane juice a crystalline, gritty uh, sugar. Um, and then in the 12th, 13th century, when Marco Polo and Dima Batuta, these great explorers, came to India and China, they saw already huge cane fields, and these cane fields were geared to international trade. So in the 12th, 13th century, we see already that um, urban refiners of sugar come to the countryside, um, pay advances to peasants to uh, buy their cane. Uh, they refine this this juice that is made still in the, in the countryside. They pay the, the farms for that. The farmers might have people uh, on wage labor. Uh, this is where we really see the beginnings of capitalism, and even capitalism that is not confined to a local market, but is already um, crossing uh, the seas and crossing the mountains into, well, let's say Central Asia, the crossing seas uh, from um, from India to the Arab Peninsula, from China to along the China coast and to Southeast Asia. So this is really an important uh, moment in the start of global capitalism. Right. So what is this historical trajectory in which sugar becomes the global south's most valuable export commodity? Yeah, and not just the, of the global south, but in the 19th century, uh, European beet sugar industry was also widely exported, uh, also across the Atlantic Ocean to uh, the United States. Um, in the 19th century, sugar was what oil would become in the 20th century internationally the most traders uh, commodity. But let's just go by one step back in the 17th and 18th uh, century, when sugar was so much traded within Asia. And secondly, of course, when uh, the Atlantic plantation complex emerged. At that time, sugar was already a very important uh, commodity. Um, in the mid-17th century, sugar was the most a traded commodity in Amsterdam. That Amsterdam was at that time the main port of uh, Europe. Amsterdam, in fact, actually was what the New York is uh, is today. But all all are indications of the importance of of sugar in the development of uh, global uh, trade. Now, in the night, we see already in the 17th and 18th century also that sugar is entering uh, the uh, recipes coming into the household, not yet as a as a daily commodity, but as a kind of luxury. But uh, sugar consumption is, is spreading in the 17th and 18th century, not just in Europe, but also in, in China, for example, or in the Ottoman Empire in the Middle East. In the 19th century, we see rapid urbanization and industrialization in, in the Western world and uh, that sugar is reaching then the, the working classes um, and um, becoming a daily consumption issue 
for the uh, uh, working class, thanks to the fact also that sugar is becoming rapidly, uh, rapidly becomes cheaper and cheaper over the course of the 19th century. Right. Also, uh, how was the price of sugar lowered? How did it become an ordinary item from a luxury one? Yeah. As I said, of course, a very important factor was the lowering of the sugar prices. So I think sugar prices were reduced by about 80% over the course of the 19th uh, century. And how did it come about? Well, I think one of the reasons was that um, there were higher yields of, uh, of, of sugar per, per acre. That's because of new plant varieties, because of the application of fertilizer. Um, the introduction of the of the sugar beet sugar in uh, in Europe, uh, which became very uh, soon a very important um, industry in Europe, um, the fact that sugar could become uh, so cheap was also due to uh, the continuation of of slavery in Cuba, in um, in Brazil, and in the southern states of the of the United States, and the fact that. Um, Colonial governments allowed a system of contract labor, uh, which was in fact forced labor, uh, allowing um, hundreds of thousands of contract labors coming from India, from China, later on from Japan, and from the Philippines to the cane fields, where people worked under forced conditions and against very, very low wages. Uh, technology is, is also a factor, but less important because we need to realize that sugar uh, production that the harvesting cane of the beet in the 19th century was a very um, labor-intensive activity. It, the harvest had to be done manually. So what we see is cheap sugar at the same time and, and um, hundreds of thousands of people working in the fields. Interesting, uh, because I also wanted to ask about the adverse impact of the overproduction and overconsumption of sugar on health. Yeah, well, sugar consumption and overconsumption is is something which is quite recent. Um, in in the eighteen fifties, eighteen sixties, obesity because of sugar overconsumption was a problem, perhaps for some people of the higher middle classes in England, but most of the people in the world did not suffer from obesity. So this has has emerged in the, in the twentieth century, and. Um, what we see now today is that um, the World Health Organization has, has issued a guideline of uh, 20 kilos per capita per year as still a responsible, um, health-wise responsible intake of uh, sugar. Uh, in many European uh, countries, but also other countries in the world, um, the sugar intake per capita is hovering between 30 and 40 kilograms per year. And in the United States, it's even about 60 kilograms if we include the high fructose corn syrup. Um, so what we see is, is in fact, a wave of obesity uh, uh, throughout uh, the, the world. And um, we're also facing diabetes to a catastrophe as a consequence. And the World Health Organization has already declared um, diabetes to a type 2 a pandemic in uh, 1999 that was not for nothing right you also mentioned about uh, the cost of production of cheap sugar so what is the relationship between the producers and the workers in this production of sugar is there any connection uh, historically to war and slavery 
yeah, that connection was, of course, particularly uh, important in the Atlantic uh, realm. Uh, so the 16th and 17th century, when super production started, European nations were at war with each other, tried to conquer each other's uh, sugar uh, plantation islands. So there was a lot of violence within the Caribbean uh, region. And of course, slavery itself was a, um, a crime against humanity um, and was attended with a lot of uh, violence, first of all, uh, through the uh, processes of, of kidnapping and transportation of people from Africa to the New World. And we need to realize that, that almost two-thirds of all the people who survived the, the transport to the, to to the Americas uh, ended up at the sugar plantations. So it is one big story uh, of, of plantation slavery, of, of extreme violence and, and cruelty. Uh, we're really black page in the human history. Um, did not stop there. In the 19th century, as I said, we have the the, the, the regime of contract labor. People were uh, hired, uh, signed a contract, but when they arrived at the plantations, were not free to leave. They had to serve their, their term at the plantations. And also uh, the uh, coerced conditions in which people had to work uh, allowed uh, the, the planters to conduct all kinds of or violent against their work. So the, the violence did not stop with the end of, uh, of slavery. And still today, when we look at Brazil or uh, the Western state of, of India, Maharashtra, or the Dominican Republic, we still see many acts of, of cruelty and exploitation uh, perpetrated against the gain work. So the, the, the whole story of sugar is filled with miserable conditions of workers. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Do you think that the arrival of technology, particularly that of the steam engine, changed the course of history for sugar? It did not change much in the conditions of the workers, as I explained, because the uh, conditions in the field remained the same. Because much of the, well, all, practically all the work in the fields had to be done manually. Cane cutting or the, the harvesting of the beet, there was uh, manual work well into the 20th century. But it has changed the character of the sugar industry itself. Before um, the 19th century, even the plantations, they were um, highly organized the units of uh, production, but they were pre-industrial and they were relatively small with two, 300 people. Now, through the introduction of steam and steel in the whole uh, process, which happened Quite early on, in the case of sugar, and, and, and we see that, for example, the first railways in Cuba were already there in 1837. So in that respect, the sugar um, belts were pretty precocious in, in history in terms of industrialization. But the industrialization was also problematic because it was so extremely expensive and not all planters could afford to buy this equipment. So what happens was that the, the wealthiest and most strongest planters, they bought the equipment 
or this was a case in France or in the Netherlands that the governments of these nations started to uh, to subsidize the introduction of uh, these um, these machines. And all in all, what we see over the 19th century is a tremendous um, increase in scale. So where we had small uh, plantations with two or three hundred people in in the late 18th century, we have huge plantations with ten thousands of acres of cane land and a huge central factory in the middle of it, uh, drawing its cane from a wide uh, vicinity. So what we see is immense uh, increase in scale and an increase in scale also in the refinery sector, which is also driven by uh, steam and steel. And what we see in the 19th century is the emergence of big uh, sugar cartels, big sugar conglomerates, uh, highly capitalized uh, sugar conglomerates. And these are still existing today. So that respect, uh, the technology revolutionized uh, sugar production and it had particularly uh, political uh, repercussions because of the concentration of power within these uh, factories and refineries. Right. Uh, I also have a different sort of a question. Uh, did sugar face any kind of religious condemnation considering that it was a newer, you know, commodity? Yeah, it's interesting that um, sugar was seen as a kind of indulgence. I mean, sweetness is, is nice and, and particularly the Catholic Church saw it as an indulgence. But in, interestingly enough, um, in in uh, for certain Protestant denominations, um, and let's not forget Islam, uh, sugar became a kind of substitute for alcohol. So where the certain religious denominations forbade alcohol, you see that... Um, that sugar was quite accepted. Um, the Quakers, for example, is also a Protestant denomination, um, rejected alcohol as as intoxicating um, and and blurring the mind. Uh, but Quaker uh, were uh, in, in the forefront of of, of making uh, sweets and pastries, and chocolate, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and really consumed. Uh, we had also in England, for example, the uh, teetotalers uh, movement trying to 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 um, combat alcoholism among uh, proletarians, uh, and they held parties. These teetotalers, um, and at these parties, there were many uh, sweet cakes and pastries uh, available. So we see a kind of substitution of uh, of sugar uh, for uh, for alcohol. Um, and that's, that's, I think, a quite interesting, important uh, facet of the history of sugar. Right, right. So, lastly, could you talk about the history of sugar in America? Yeah, that's also an interesting uh, story because um, the United States, in the course of the 19th century, by the end of the 19th century, were far the largest single sugar market in the world. Um, and I talked a bit about the concentration of uh, the sugar industry over the course of the 19th century. And the United States is a key example of that. Um, we know the stories about uh, the robber barons, the robber capitalism, uh, at the Gilded Age in the United States at the end of the 19th century. Um, but um, that was the time of Rockefeller, etc. Uh, but sugar had its own uh, robber barons. And um, by the end of the 19th century, the East Coast refiners, or the refiners in, in New York and Boston, etc., cetera, uh, decided to form a cartel. And uh, that was because sugar prices were going down. Uh, the refiners saw their 
margins of profits uh, declining. Um, and they decided to form a cartel uh, to operate jointly against their uh, suppliers of raw sugar and to raise the sugar prices of the consumers. So that, that way they were able to uh, raise um, the margins of, uh, of profits. Um, so we have a kind of high cap cartelized capitalism, sugar capitalism in the United States from the late 19th century onwards. And uh, they became even more powerful because it was linked up with the emerging sugar beet industry in the United States, also very powerful. And there's another interesting feature, um, the United States in 1898 waged um, a war against Spain and the consequence of this war was that Cuba and the Philippines and Puerto Rico became dependencies of the United States. All three were uh, sugar producing uh, countries. In addition, in 1898, um, Hawaii became annexed by the United States. So all of a sudden, the United States that had always been an importer of sugar became practically self-sufficient in uh, sugar and uh, established uh, a, a very powerful sugar conglomerate with a lot of political clout. And it also led to a system in the United States of, of tariffs, tariff walls and so-called uh, sugar uh, program, which allowed some client states to import, uh, export sugar to the United States, but was mainly uh, designed to protect uh, American sugar producers. Now, uh, this was very detrimental to other sugar producers in the world because uh, protection uh, means that within the country where the sugar is protected, prices are um, higher than the world market. But outside protective walls, prices will go down because uh, there's some demand falling away. And it became even worse in the 1980s when uh, in the United States, the beverage industries, Coca-Cola and other beverage industries, um, introduced uh, high fructose corn syrup as ingredient of their beverages. And high fructose corn syrup is not made of cane or beet, but is made of corn. And um, this sweetness stuff uh, became dominant in the beverage industry, which had a tremendously uh, negative effect on the sugar prices worldwide. Sugar industry in the United States is extremely powerful, and it's also very powerful in, uh, in Europe. And uh, because they are so powerful, they will fight, they will successfully fight attempts by governments to uh, reduce, to, to follow the guidelines of the world's uh, health organization, so to speak, to reduce the uh, sugar intake to uh, levels that are less unhealthy than they are now. So this is uh, our present sugar consumption in the United States is an excellent example of that. Our present sugar consumption is very much a result how the sugar economy is organized and how um, sugar uh, companies and sugar conglomerates actually uh, hold uh, the, um, the political scene uh, in their thrall. Um, so it is not that sugar is the result, our sugar consumption is the result because of our liking of sugar. Yes, sure, we do like sugar, but it's also very much uh, a result of how capitalism works. And this capitalism works through a collision of uh, of state and enterprise right so uh, thank you so much Ube, for taking your time to discuss 
your very fascinating work and new book with us. I hope that our listeners find the podcast interesting and pick up a copy of the book and get to reading it. Thank you so much once again for joining me today. Okay, then. thank you. Thank you so much. 